0: So we're going to be in the book of 2 Samuel this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn there. Again, that 2 Samuel. will be in chapter 6, starting at verse 12, going to the end of the chapter, verse 23. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible with you, that the scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. So this morning, in our early service, our 830 traditional service, uh, we sang a song that gave me a bit of a flashback. Uh, it was a flashback to the time when I was a kid about... Uh, Four minutes, uh, our oldest age. And uh, if, as you imagine this flashback, uh, just imagine him, because we kind of looked virtually the same uh, when I was his age. Uh, and so I remember being on a stage in the church that I grew up in, and we were singing, my family and I uh, were singing a uh, special music, a uh, special music piece. The song that we were singing was none other than Our God is an Awesome God. Everybody remember that song, many of you? Okay, I thought I'd see a few more hands. Uh, like a 90s song. Um, so we did that and it was one of the only two times uh, that I got on a stage in a church and sang in that capacity in a special kind of setting. Now, I've I led hymns in like nursing homes and, and, and when we were really small churches and we, the music guy wouldn't show up then either Cheryl or I would kind of be leading the, uh, the hymns for the Sunday morning. So we've done that before, but as far as singing a special, that was one of the only two times that it happened. Uh, And as I was singing that this morning, it was a great reminder beyond being a wonderful sermon illustration. It was a great reminder that God doesn't change, Uh, no matter how much things around us change. um, Within the 30 years that it separated, those two experiences, me singing just a moment ago in worship, just a couple hours ago, uh, and, and, and me being on stage with my family singing that same song, those same words, that same refrain of how our God is indeed an awesome God, that... God's awesomeness doesn't change because my surroundings change or because my circumstances change. Uh, And that that's not just the case for 30 years, but when I'm in heaven and we're there 10,000 years, he's still going to be awesome. Still going to be awesome for eternity. Still going to be worthy of praise. Uh, every moment that goes by is not a moment that God's glory diminishes. Instead, it's like as much as you could possibly have, and so it, it never decreases, never increases because it's perfect, and it's always been that way even before this thing called time even existed. And so I was reminded of that and rejoiced in that that what God had done and getting to sing about how awesome He is. So the second time. That I was asked to or had to—I'm going, to, going to use that language because I think that communicates it. The next time that I had to sing a special at a church was when I was a youth minister, brand new. I was 18 years old. Really didn't have any business doing it. wasn't mature enough to be and to be sincere with you. Um, but we had a student, a 12 or 13 year old girl uh, who was into music. Um, Wrote her own songs, played the guitar. I wanted to end up doing that later in life. Uh, and, and so, and to encourage her to use her gifts, uh, to get out there and to give what, take what God had given her and to use it, to give it back to Him, to lead other people to Him, something that she wanted to do, we encouraged her to get on stage and actually perform a special on a Sunday morning. But she wouldn't do it by herself. She wouldn't get up and play the guitar by herself. And so, I. Uh, Hesitantly volunteered uh, to sing a song while she played the guitar, and it was a love song by Third Day. Anybody remember that '90s Christian rock fans? You can remember that song. So we got up there, we sang that song. I felt okay about it. Okay, I was. It was embarrassing because I don't like doing that in front of people, and and I just kind of wanted to hide. And you know, it was one of those things where I wish we could have had like a sheet up or something, and I could have just sat behind it while she played the guitar, you know, in front of everybody. Um, And and maybe even like turn the microphone way down and and turn Matt Powell's voice up in the background so that you would think. Anyway, so all these thoughts ran through your head, you know, and I'm embarrassed by that whole situation. But I felt okay about it. And, you know, I remember my, my sister, who's a very talented singer and musician, trying to give me encouragement, talking about how good it was, and, and saying something like, it sounded like y'all were harmonizing. And I'm like, sure, you know, whatever that means. I, I have no idea how, what harmony is, so if you say so. So that told me I was probably all over the place, and, and I just, but I, I still felt okay about it until my brother-in-law, who's also a talented musician, could play any, reminds me a lot of Scott Pelt over here, could play anything with a set of strings on it. He also, being very honest, uh, told me uh, as my sister was trying to log, you know, like unnecessary praise upon me. He said, "You know, you can't be good at everything." That was his response, Um, and I needed that. I needed that that bit of humble pie uh, because I wasn't good at that, and I didn't need to pretend like I was. I didn't want to be. You know, one of those people, uh, when American Idol was new, you know, and they would sing completely oblivious to how bad they were. I didn't want to be that guy, obviously. So, uh, I was good to hear that, but it was also a bit embarrassing. It made me feel even more embarrassed about that moment. Um, nobody likes to be embarrassed. Some people like to be the center of attention. But um, even when they're a center of attention, if they're acting in, in, in a manner we would call it goofy, and even then, they're not embarrassed because that's where they long to be. Embarrassed. When you want to hide, when you want to get away Nobody likes to be embarrassed Which is basically like uncovered uh, Which is basically like exposed To the world and and vulnerable Nobody wants to be in that situation And, And we run from that In the world a lot Because we're afraid of what people might think of us I mean how many times have you heard people say things like Friends are people who know all about you And like you anyway Or maybe if you tell someone individually Or someone's told you, you know Feel like I could be myself when I'm with you. The insinuation being that we can't be ourselves with most people in the world. That we feel unsafe being ourselves with most people in the world. And so, to some degree, in most, almost all social settings, despite maybe a, other than maybe a few close family relationships and a few close friendships, we have a certain guard up. But I'm not here to tell you you need to quit that because there's there's something in that that is that is safe and it makes since because we've let our guard down before and, and it hasn't gone well for us. And so we keep that up. And that is like a sermon and a topic unto itself and that's not at all where I'm going this morning. But I, I want to use that as an example of how we sometimes operate in the realm of worship. And in that feeling of, of having a guard up, feeling afraid of, of being vulnerable and letting our guard down and being honest and being real, being ourselves. Fully, ourselves is something that we often don't take, or so that feeling of being afraid of that is something that we often take in the worship. We might say to ourselves that I would do X as an active worshiper, I would would express myself in this manner in a a group worship setting, but I'm afraid that it might distract someone, or I'm afraid that it might draw attention away from the thing to the, the, the God to whom we ought to be paying attention. You know, as you begin to think that, as you begin to think along those lines, I would encourage you to, to, to humbly evaluate yourself and ask yourself, is that something I would do by myself? And if it's not something that you would do on your own as an expression of worship, perhaps you need to check that and see if it's genuine. But if it is something that you would do on your own and you're afraid to do it in front of other people, I ask you, just as I would ask myself in the same situation, is is it really that you don't want to be a distraction, or is it a simpler fear? that you're afraid about how other people would view you. You're afraid of how they would look at you, how they would respond to the way that you express yourself in worship. It's more evidence, this keeping up with appearances, making sure that we impress it upon people that we're not one of those crazy people. It's more of the same of us being off-center when it comes to the idea of worship, more evidence that our focus is often elsewhere than on the person of Jesus Christ who ought to be at the center. That's what we talked about last week, that Jesus is the center of our worship. He is the sole focus. We ought to be completely focused on him and nothing else. When we enter into this time of worship, either corporately or individually or in a small group, we ought to enter into such a frame of mind with God, Jesus Christ, completely at the center. And as we think about what that looks like when it comes to how we worship, how we express, we need to ask ourselves a question. If Jesus is at the center, then why do we care? Why do you care? Why do I care so much about what other people think? The passage we're going to read this morning from 2 Samuel is a story about David. A story in which David did not care what other people thought of the way he expressed himself in worship and rejoicing of the one true God that had given him unbelievable gifts. And as we read this story, I hope that you look inwardly as well. And, and, and the, the, the takeaway that I want you to leave with this morning is this. Worship like no one's watching but God. Worship like no one is watching except for God. In this audience of one to whom we worship, he is the one whose focus we ought to pay attention to. He is the one whose gaze we want to fall under, not under anyone else's. So we worship like no one is watching but God. Well, again, we're going to read Second Samuel six, twelve 12-23. But before we get into this story and I set you up with some context, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. God, we thank you for being here amongst us and within us. And Lord, I pray that through the power of your spirit, God, you would allow allow our defenses to come down. God, that you would take them down so that we might be open and honest and vulnerable with ourselves and with you. God, that we might do business with you in these moments that we have together this morning. God, I pray that you would remove distraction. And God, I pray that our focus would be solely upon you and your word. God, I pray that that through your Holy Spirit, through conviction and through encouragement, God, that you would allow your words to transform our hearts and God, the way that we live. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Samuel 6, we see, again, a story about David, but also revolving around an object. And that object is the Ark of God, or the Ark of the Covenant. Just to give you a little background before we actually get into the passage, The Ark of the Covenant was a a holy wooden box (laughs) that was built according to instructions given straight from God over which the presence of God was thought to literally dwell. It stayed in the holiest place, and and God, again, was was, was there. They would visit it once a year, and and God was, was, was with wherever the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the Spirit of God was also thought to be. Now, in the time of Eli... There was a battle with the Philistines, one of the, the main villains or one of the main enemies for the Israelites during this portion of scripture. And the Israelites lost the battle. They took the Ark of the Covenant into the battle thinking that it would help them win. And then they lost the battle and the Philistines captured it. It was a sad day, a terrible day for the Israelites. And so the Philistines decided that this was basically going to be a trophy. And so they took it back to their place and, and it didn't end up going well for them. Uh, they put it in the same area as that there was a, a, an idol to their God, and what would happen is they would, they would put it in there, they would leave, and then they would come back, and their God's idol would have fallen off and broken, and that happened a couple of times. And, and, and again, maybe that, that started to, to make them a little worried, a little afraid, and then it got worse because there were physical ailments. Uh, there were all sorts of things happening to them because they had the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God in their territory and not where it was supposed to be with the Israelite people. And so they decided this is too much trouble. Um, We don't want this after all. So they decided to give it back to the Israelites. And it ended up eventually in a place named Kiriath-Jerim, or according to this passage, or according to chapter 6, the name of the place was bel Judah, And it stays here until, again, this chapter. Earlier in this chapter, in verses 1 through 11, we learn that the newly appointed King David, who had just defeated the Philistines in battle, um, decided that it was time to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. You can imagine why. Again, he is the newly anointed king. Uh, They have just been victorious in a battle. And so it's time to bring the presence of God back to the center of the kingdom, which was Jerusalem. Uh, David is there to to usher out the old ways of Saul, uh, to kind of reestablish the people as a people for for God, for God's kingdom. And so it makes sense to go get the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, and to usher him, to usher it back into Jerusalem. And so he goes to do that. They begin to move the ark back towards Jerusalem, but they make a couple of mistakes. They carry it in a way that wasn't prescribed. They move it in a way that Scripture told that scripture didn't tell them to. And as they, they built a special cart for it, uh, they, they had some oxen pulling it, and again, that wasn't the method prescribed by Scripture. And so they were moving it back to Jerusalem, and it began to fall. One of the oxen stumbled, uh, began to kind of slide off the cart, and a dude named Uzzah put out his hand to stop it from falling off, which makes sense, right? You would want it to stop it from falling off. And as soon as his hand touched the ark, he died. The reason being that God is holy, God is sovereign. Now, this is not as if God was meanly striking him down. But there's something other, something transcendent about this God. And, and David and those who were carrying the ark back, they had forgotten it in that moment. David gets frustrated. David almost seems angry or scared by what happened. And so he decides to put the ark close by, not take it all the way back to Jerusalem, and leave it at the house of a God named Obed-Edom. And this is where we actually pick up in our passage with the ark at the house of of Obed-Edom, David frustrated, but then he gets some good news in, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. His household but Michael the daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said how the king of Israel has honored himself today uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself and David said to Michael it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel the people of the Lord and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Again, in this story, we see David rejoicing. He had been afraid about because of what had happened. He had been seemingly frustrated because uh, of what went wrong when they first tried to move the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. But but now he, he seems to have the energy back. He, he, he seems to, to maybe have made some changes and understand what he needed to do differently. And so they, they go to the house of Obadiah. Where the Ark of the Covenant was, it was doing well by Obed-Edom. He was having success and, and prosperity because the presence of the Lord was there. And so David goes there and with rejoicing, begins to take the Ark of the Covenant back properly this time. Back to Jerusalem. So humble or, or so, so uh, uh, like worshipful is David in this setting. He comes before God with humility and with trembling this time so much so that after six steps they stop and they have a sacrifice and and not just any sacrifice they sacrifice an ox that would have taken a while Right? It wasn't just some little act. It and we see just a few words in Scripture, but, but they would have been there a while doing that. And, and we kind of get the idea that, that they did this along the way. It might have been what had happened, is that after a few steps, they performed some sacrifice to God. That's not stated obviously in the Scripture, but it is indeed possible of the way they went about it. But what we do know is that definitely after six steps, they stopped and made this sacrifice. And, and David does this, as the Scripture says with all his might he dances and rejoices before the lord with all his might david was giving everything he had to god not holding back anything you see true worship is ultimately giving god our whole selves what the apostle paul in romans 12 would call becoming a living sacrifice of offering ourselves up for god david didn't just give a little bit of his effort David didn't just give some thought to what he was doing. David didn't just give 90% of what God was asking him to do. No, David worshipped before the Lord, danced before the Lord with all his might. With everything that he had. You know what it's like to feel worn out when you give yourself to something, right? When, when you have a job that you're passionate about, or maybe you're not passionate about, but either way, you're giving yourself to it. You're giving your best energy of the day to this job, and, and you go and you lay it all out. Whatever you're doing, you, you put everything, every every ounce of energy you have into it, and then you come home at the end of the day, especially if it's a job you love, you're satisfied, but you're also worn out. Yes? I know there's some hard workers in this building that can identify with that. You feel like you gotta go to sleep immediately, but you're so caught up with energy in the day that you can't make yourself go to sleep. You're just tired, right? Completely worn out yet also satisfied of a good day of hard work. Have you ever felt that way after you've worshiped, either corporately or individually? where you, you, you feel like you've you given yourself away. Not like you're exhausted where you don't want to face the next day. I'm not talking about that, like, exhaustion. Oh, this is terrible. I'm talking about that, that feeling like your body is tired, like you've expended some energy while also feeling complete, while also feeling satisfied, and, and like you've been a part of something important. Have you ever felt that way after worship? Uh, there are times when, on, on Sunday mornings, or especially like it's after, if, if I have the opportunity, uh, the, 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 the opportunity to preach a funeral, there are times when I get done with that That I'm I want to compare it to running a marathon But I've never even thought about running a marathon So I'm not going to do that <laughs> But that I feel like I've expended myself Like I've worked eight hours In an hour span Because there's so much energy Packed into that Do you ever feel like After you've experienced And given God your worship do you ever feel worn out Physically Maybe mentally and spiritually refreshed, but physically drained. I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying if you don't feel that way after you worship that you don't love Jesus. I'm just asking, do you you really put yourself into worship? Do you give your, your whole self to God, becoming, again, as Paul would say in Romans 12, a living sacrifice? David was willing to do that, to give everything he had to God to abase himself before God and others. The narrator of this story makes the point to tell us that David was wearing a linen ephod. I support it for a couple of reasons, but one, that is a priestly garment, not a royal garment, not a kingly garment. David is the newly anointed king of Israel, and one of the first things that he does, instead of relishing in his royalty and saying, bow to me, O people, I am your king, instead, King David becomes priest David, one of the only kings to do that. He, he takes a step down, as it were, in power, so that he might worship God as priest, so that he might lead Israel in worship. And they follow his lead. They worship with, with shouting, with the sound of horn blasting. Uh, you see that in the scripture that we read. They, they followed his priestly lead in worship, and so David becomes a worship leader. In this situation, not just the king of Israel who could command the army at a moment's notice. No, he becomes a worship leader, and now his wife doesn't like this look. Uh, he doesn't, she doesn't like the look of, of him taking a step down. The linen ephod was also probably a short garment, and she gets upset because he, he, when he was dancing around, it became improper. You can read between the lines in that one, and so she gets upset about it. And she looks down from the window of the palace, wherever she is, and she despises him in her heart. That language is strong. I'm sure the narrator shows it on purpose. She has contempt towards him. When David talks about his response, he says, I will become even more contemptible than this. And so that's the, the, the feeling that she harbored towards him was one of contempt. You know the difference between dislike and contempt, right? Dislike is, I really don't want to be around you. Contempt is, I want bad things to happen to you. I want you to fail. That's contempt. And so she despises David in her heart. We might even use the word as strong as hate. Let me give you a little context with Michael. Besides having one of the worst female names in all of the Bible, she also had some other things going against her. She was the daughter of Saul. Now, that's no small thing. The narrator decided that every time he called her name, go back and read three times in that passage, it is Michael, the daughter of Saul. Michael, the daughter of Saul. He wants to draw your attention to that fact. Why? Because I don't know if you know this or not. If you don't, go back and read first second Samuel. Um, Saul wasn't a big fan of David. Right, he, he was a of course, but he wasn't a big fan of David ultimately, and they had some issues with one another. He believed that David was trying to usurp him and take over everything. Saul and David still somehow managed to have respect for Saul through most of it, uh, but if you know the story, you, you know that Saul's reign has come to an end. Saul, seeing death as something that was inevitable, decided to take his own life. And now we have David stepping into this role, and and he gets to inherit Michael, who was married to another man before that, and and now she's taken out of that situation. And so she probably has some issues with David, obviously, because of what's going on, because Saul, the guy that used to be in power, uh, that kind of hated David and pursued him and tried to kill him, and ended up losing, essentially losing that fight, now it's the guy that he wanted dead, that's her husband, and also the king of Israel. And so, again, I want you to read that in context. Uh, She comes off looking very nasty in this story, and it's not a good look, uh, but there's some context going on behind the scenes. And and, 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 and the main context I want you to see for this passage, this lesson today, is that she comes from, like, the Saul school of leadership, the Saul school of royalty, where it was about appearances, uh, where it was about clinging to power, where it was about doing what you wanted to do, regardless of what God said you needed to do. That was one of the main issues with Saul. If you remember, before he was wanting to perform a sacrifice, it wasn't time when he was supposed to wait on Samuel. If you know the story in Scripture. And he decided, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And, and that, that showed Saul's heart that he didn't want to wait on God. He didn't want to lean on God. He didn't want to trust God. He wanted to go out and do it himself Why? because that's what a king does. He's royal. He takes the power. He takes the influence. That's the school of leadership, the school of royalty that Michael had grown up in. And now she sees from her position up above everybody else, which is probably literally where she was, but it also shows in a metaphorical sense how she believes she was above all of those little peons on the ground. And so she looks down from her throne, from her position as the wife of the king. She looks down and sees this going on. And she thinks to herself, how dare... He'd go down this far how dare he be amongst the people and she comes to him dripping with sarcasm oh king David how holy you are and how honorable you were today in the sight of the people not only did you expose yourself to a bunch of women they were the servants of your servants and you took yourself down to that level oh David how honorable is the king you ever been around somebody dripping with sarcasm like that? Like, oh, you do such a great job, right? I'm so glad you you help around the house, or I'm so glad that that you 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 cook this great meal. You know, you, I know I just went to marriage, right? That's not us. I'm not saying that, <laughs> but that's often where a lot of people go, right? Sarcasm—that's where she comes. She's hidden it because she has that contempt in her heart for him, and she is. Completely misjudged what she just saw David's response is telling he looks at Michael and he says you know it was before the Lord the God who chose me over your father and appointed me as king of Israel it was before him that I was worshiping not you And look, you're worried about how these people are going to be me. You know what, they're going to be fine. They're fine with it. But it was before the Lord that I was worshiping. He had an audience of one in mind. And he was reminding Michael very quickly that she was not his audience. That his audience in worship was the Lord. He says, I will make myself yet more contemptible. More undignified. That's what it says in the NIV. I will make myself even more undignified than this. You think you've seen me undignified? You think you've seen me contemptible? Wait until you see how I'm really going to worship God. Wait until you see how I'm going to be that, and David becomes the archetype of the priest king, right? The one who is willing to come and serve the people, being a man after God's own heart. David is the one who sins extraordinarily, right, big time. But at the same time, when he encounters the depths of a sin, he does so with a broken and contrite heart. See Psalm 51. When he gets to see that sin, when Nathan comes to him and says, you're the sinner, he begs for forgiveness from God, willing to see himself humbly through the eyes of another, instead of being that king that says, how dare you question me? How dare you try to take me down to your level? No, David was the one willing to take himself down especially in this position. Wait until you see, Michael, how far down I'm going to go just to worship my God. Wait until you see it. It wasn't for you. It was before the Lord. And again, she's mad because he was around the riffraff, exposing himself and acting in an improper manner. David says, you haven't seen anything yet. Not only that exposing himself, you can look at it literally, but you can also look at it figuratively. That he was opening himself up. He was being vulnerable before the Lord, showing the true nature of his heart and where he was. And Michael, the last thing we hear about her is that she has no children. Now in this day in particular, that should be seen as an act of judgment. This is how a woman found importance in that era in that culture so for that not to happen we're seeing an act of judgment upon her that's what that should be viewed as not only that we're also seeing the end of Saul's line which is important that, that, that way the old way of thinking is, is gone when she is gone but why do we see that act of judgment upon her I don't know it should cause us pause when we are critical of the worship habits of another person Or group of people. Judging another's worship offering is a serious matter. A serious matter. Now I'm not saying that it is without precedent in scripture. We're going to be in First Corinthians 14 in a couple of weeks. And we're going to look at the side of organizing. Being organized in worship. The kind of worship, the kind of witness that worship shows toward God. It should be something of which we are mindful. But what we see in this passage is that we shouldn't judge another's worship just by reaction, by response, by like an immediate reaction, like a gut reaction, we shouldn't judge another person's worship because it it doesn't fit with the way we, like the tastes that we have, or the subjective idea that we have of what worship is. Like if it's unbiblical, then we should do something about it, right? But if it's I don't like this or that, I don't like that, I don't like the movement, I don't like the music, I don't like the beat, I don't like the look of it, I don't like the aesthetic, whatever it might be, that it should cause us pause for a moment before we become critical of someone else's worship style, of someone else's expression, of someone else's offering, living sacrifice offering to God. We should pause before we, grant, before we give judgment in that case. Why? Because Bible was cursed for it. That's why. When we're talking about a holy God and other people worshiping him, and we try to put ourselves in the position of God, which is to be that audience of one. When we're looking at the way other people worship and we're determining whether it's good or bad, how dare we put ourselves in that position? It's just like Michael. We are not the ones being worshipped. We are bystanders for the other person and their relationship with God and the worship that they are giving. Or we are co-worshippers at best. Again, if there's some unbiblical stuff going on, we need to have a conversation. But it ought to be done with trembling and with humility before we just flippantly judge another person's worship or another culture's worship or another church's denomination's worship. Instead, we should worship like no one is watching but God. You see, with David, appearances didn't matter. He didn't care how contemptible he became, how undignified he appeared in the eyes of others. No, he only cared about how he appeared in the eyes of God. On the flip side of that, Michael only cared about how undignified David appeared in the eyes of others. And so the question leaping out of this passage to me personally and perhaps to you as well is, is your goal to be worshipful in church or to appear worshipful? To have the appearance of a worship. Where you come to church, you sit in a pew, you sing the songs where your heart is never truly open. You're doing it because that's what you're supposed to do. And because you want to appear to everybody around you as though you have an active, life-giving relationship with God. When in reality, faking it is sucking the life right out of you. I don't expect an amen because I know that it's true for some of us. I've been there as well. My question, again, for me and for you is, is the goal to be worshipful or to appear worshipful? Now, again, this is not without nuance. I'm not coming to you as if this is some easy thing. As if I should say you should worship exactly in the same manner that David did. And we all need to stand up and dance before the Lord with all our might. That's not what I'm saying. You're welcome. I'm not asking anybody to do that. But what I am suggesting is that we should look inwardly and ask ourselves. Are we worshiping God with all our might? Or are we just hoping that other people think that we are? In 1 Corinthians 14, which again I'm going to preach on in a couple of weeks. Paul gives instruction about how to worship in an organized manner. And he says it so that when other people come in, they don't think you've lost your mind. You can go read it ahead of time if you want to. That's actually what he says. So it's important that we have organized and that we don't just do things to draw attention to ourselves. right? That, that's the total wrong, wrong way to take this. It's for you to think, oh, the pastor talked about dancing before the Lord, and so it's an opportunity for me to... You know, just like completely lose all inhibition and and and, and act out and, and dance and, and 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 fall out on the ground and, and do all of these things just so that other people will see. You know, because the pastor preached on it Sunday, how how worshipful I am and how I'm willing to go in any degree. Guess what? You're still missing the point if that's the response. Because here's the reality: it's not about the fact that David danced before the Lord. Go ahead and like take that part out for a second. And let's sit over here. We'll come back to it. Is that David worships God with all his might. That's the important part. And it's going to look different for you. And it's going to look different for me. Because I have a, as a, as a 90s kid, growing up in the church, as the contemporary church music movement was coming along. I have, a, I have a bit of a testimony of how, like, there's some nuance in this discussion. Because I remember being in, in, in church camps. And being the God. and even if you know me, you've been around me outside of a church setting. You know, I'm fairly laid back. Pretty easy, I don't get too excited about anything, and, and so my style of worship tends to be quiet tends to, you know, I I'm, might I'm, I'm be moving back and forth maybe that's normally about the height of my expression and there was a time where I felt guilty about that because I would be in a church camp setting or, or, or some other kind of setting and I would see someone, you know, armed like this literally, arms wide open and tears streaming down their faces and my immediate response was, oh God I wish I loved you like they did Oh, God, I, I wish I had that same sense of worship and surrender that they did. I don't know that person's heart. I can see the tears on their face and the stance of their, the, their posture. But I, I couldn't see if they were really worshiping or not. Guess guess what? It wasn't for me. It was for God and God alone. And worshiping God for some people might look like this hands in pocket, eyes closed singing. Worship for some people might look like this. Head bowed quiet doesn't look like anybody's home, but that's what worship might look like. Worship might look like, and I know we don't have enough room normally to do it in our church setting because of the pews the way they are, but worship might look like someone on their knees before God. It might look like someone whispering a prayer to themselves. It might look like someone who is so intense with worship that they leave the room so that they can worship God on their own and might look like someone who's singing so loud that everybody around them hears and they're totally off key but they're making a joyful noise. Can I get an amen for those kind of people in the church? It might look like someone who has a beautiful voice and is offering that to God maybe quietly because again they want to keep it just between them and God. It might look like somebody who's raising their hands in exaltation about what God has done. It might look like somebody who's trying to keep it close by. You know the Baptist hand raised lock right here. It might look like somebody who's trying to do that. It might look a million different ways. But guess what? If it's for God, I don't care what you think and you shouldn't care what I think. Amen? Somebody in the house testified back to me. It shouldn't matter what we think about each other's worship because it's not for each other. It is for the center. His name is Jesus. He alone should be worshiped. And I hope that in this setting you feel like you are able to express yourself. Quietly, calmly, loudly, bigly, in the name of Jesus Christ, because he is worth that worship. And yes, I just said bigly. He is worth that worship. He is worth so much more than that. You see, here's the thing. If Jesus is at the center, like he should be and like he will be for eternity, Then our worship ought to be a reaction. You know, when it comes to decision-making, I often tell people, if they seek my opinion, and I often tell them, don't just react in the moment. Instead, think. Think through a response. Try to think objectively. Try to separate yourself from the problem. Brainstorm a little bit and then come back with a response. On worship, I'm going to suggest the opposite that it shouldn't be some well-thought-out, well-crafted response. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't plan. We should do that. But in the moment, for those of us who are worshiping, who aren't on the planning team that's doing everything on stage, for those of us who are worshiping, it should be a reaction. That we should be so into the center, that it's God and Jesus Christ. That we just react. That we just respond, suddenly. With worship, that's what David was doing. Do you think David like took out a tablet and, and hammered out a few ideas of how he might worship God on the way back to Jerusalem? Do you think he, he was riding on his hand, and he said, yeah, not this one? Mm, I think this one will work, I don't think that one will work, or, or do you think he was wondering, I wonder what other people will, will think of, of this way that I worship? No. David was getting getting, uh, the the opportunity to be a part, to be the leader of, again, literally and figuratively ushering the people back into the presence of God after a season of darkness. And he is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to the center of the kingdom in Jerusalem. And, and, And he's just so into that and so into what God is doing that he just reacts in worship. With all his might, this should be the heart of every worshiper. However it looks on the outside, that we are so into the presence of God, that we are so into giving ourselves to him, that we react in his presence. That is worship. A grateful reaction to what God is doing and has done for us. So again, I'm not asking you to dance. I'm just asking you to worship God the way you were built to worship God. But before you think that that is license to just completely let all expression go, and for you to continue in the same motions and just sit there and not think about anything, I want to throw this quote before you that's really stuck with me all week. I found it one day. It's by a guy named W.G. Blakey, a commentator. And about this passage, he writes these words. There are doubtless times to be calm, and times to be enthusiastic. But can it be right to give all of our wholeness to Christ and all of our enthusiasm to the world? Again, if you want to check how you're built to worship, think about the way you worship other things. Is it right to give all of our wholeness, quiet, calm worship to God and all of our enthusiasm to football, movies, music? Who are you worshipping? Who is at the center? And why are you worshipping? him? What has He done for which you are grateful? If you've answered those two questions, you know what it means to worship this God. And I encourage you to do it like no one else is watching but Him, but God, the only one whose eyes matter. To not be the Michael in the story, checking out other people's worship style and saying whether it's good or bad, use the Bible, bring correction when needed to, but when it comes to taste and subjectivity, that's not your job. Instead, may we be centered on Christ, centered on God and worshiping Him alone, putting Him on the throne, and putting ourselves back where we belong, at the foot of that throne, with Him being our sole pines. Worship like no one else is watching, except for God. This morning, during our time of invitation, I encourage you to deal with God right where you are, right there in your pew, You can come down and worship at the altar, you can come down and pray with me, pray at the altar, pray right where you're at, but I encourage you to allow God to speak to you and to speak back to him. And if you need to pray about anything, I'm here to do that with you this morning, I'll hang out after the service as well, but above all, may we during this time worship together, worship with each other in the room as if there's no one in the room except for God. And may we do that every time, whether we're in a big group, small group, our families, or in our closets. May we worship God as if he is the only one watching. I'm going to pray. Let's stand together. And our band is going to lead us in a song of invitation. Father, again, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for how good you are, how worthy of worship you are. God, I repent. And God, I ask, God, that through the forgiveness that you've already offered me, Lord, that that you would cover up and you would lead my heart away from worrying about appearances and what other people think, trying to gain attention or avoid it. God, may we, may I, may all of us together in this room submit to you with all our minds, giving our whole self to you is an act of worship. You are worth that and so much more. I pray that in Jesus' name